college access and the fact that college still remains a space in which white supremacy is fully intact, then in working with black and brown students, how do I make sure that they're safe and equipped to deal with that next step in those spaces? Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impact and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? All right. Hi, Danielle. So my name is Anuma Minkiti, and I serve as the um, Director of College Access. I started off as an English teacher, but I've been doing work in the College Access field for, I think, like maybe 17, 15 years, 17 years. I can't even count. I'm getting old. <laughs> and Black educators are so, so important because Black students and white students as well need to see Black educators in front of them. Black students need representation. Um, they need to be able to identify with the people disseminating knowledge um, as knowledge bearers. And Black educators also matter because they can tap into their own um, educational experience and identity to help guide uh, students. Where are you from, Enuma? I'm originally from Boston, but I've been in New York area since 2001. Okay. So I guess I'm sort of a New Yorker, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> by now. So growing up in Boston, what was your educational experience like? Yeah, so actually, I have a pretty interesting story. I was homeschooled until high school, oh. and I was home- homeschooled by my mother, but my mother actually happens to be a white, white, so, so she was a white educator homeschooling black or biracial children. You know, it was actually a wonderful, wonderful experience because her her philosophy on homeschooling was like the opposite of how some people view homeschooling, where people are trying to like isolate themselves and kind of remove themselves from the dangerous outside culture. Her philosophy was all about using the world around us to learn. And so making learning a 24-7 experience and just engaging with people, places, museums, nature, interviewing people. Like, it was just a wonderful experience. And um, I think she taught us a lot of great critical thinking skills. Yeah, and how to love learning, which is most important. And then from being homeschooled, I ended up going to, I got a scholarship to a private school in Newton, outside of Boston. Newton Country Day School is a Catholic girls' school. And then from there, I went to Williams College and then ended up in the city at Columbia and St. Peter's. How was it for you transitioning from homeschool to going to school? It was, it, it was interesting. You know, I was very nervous at first. And I think I lost some of my zest for learning when it became sort of within this really confined space and it contained room and with like the teacher sitting in front of you and you're sitting in a desk, like it really changed how I identified with learning. And so I think I lost a bit of my zest for it, even though the school was really a very excellent school as far as schools go. (laughs) I I, I struggled a bit with some of the more concrete skills like math, but um, my reading levels were really high, et cetera. So within like half a year I had, caught up and, you know, was put in all the honors classes. So I think homeschooling was a good foundation. When did you have your first black educator? Ah, this is actually a very, um, 
was timely question right now because um, I'm actually working with the, the high school right now to have some serious discussions about how to make this space a lot more welcoming to the students of color. I'm not sure if you're aware of the whole recent trending Instagram tag, like black at whatever. So there'll be like prep schools. And I think some of the colleges even are now have these accounts where people can anonymously share experiences that they had in the classroom and in the school at these predominantly white institutions. And some of these accounts are, you know, I can identify with many of them. And it's just sad. It's sad to read, you know, in, in reflecting back on my high school experience with other alumni of color, there was literally two black educators for my whole four years in high school. Had One was an art teacher who I'm still close with today. And then the other one was a very a young black history teacher who's now um, a pretty well-known author and she does podcasts as well in New York. And she was super revolutionary to that school. And she taught us to think outside the box. She taught us about history that's not from the, um, you know, white male perspective and the school couldn't really handle her. <laughs> um, but to me, so they ended up letting her go. But to me, she was, she was life-changing. Um, so that was sophomore year in high school. So that's my first black teacher, first black female teacher, and the only one of two for the next, you know, four years. Um, but she changed my life. So, Shout out to all of the revolutionary teachers who don't fit in at your administration, like with your administration, but you still are changing the lives of students because we yes. miss that. Um, I think especially when we have designed our evaluation tools and systems attached to test scores or attached to other metrics that don't necessarily take into consideration like how are you affecting these children? Not like their test scores. Not so. I love that you said like they couldn't handle. Like it's okay yeah, to it be is. fired. It doesn't feel good. It does not feel good if you and your administration don't get along. And I'm not encouraging like people to not get along. But if you know that you were called to this space for this time to educate these students and be what they need you to be. You can be that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I think she had such an impact, not just not just even on only the black students. Like for me, her impact was felt like in and out of the classroom and just having the, her presence like as this, you know, she had, she was already had books published at age 24 and she was very well accomplished and uh, just got us to think so critically about everything. And having that come from someone who like you could really identify with it was like healing, you know, had a healing power to it. Um, there was other amazing educators in the school who taught me wonderful things, but um, her being in that black body, black female body, who we can identify, it just had this really healing power. And I think um, even to this day, 20 years later, like we're all still, you know, we're friends with her on Facebook and as well as um, a lot of the white students as well really took to her and learned from her. So she had, a, you know, great impact on us. So I was not familiar with the black at social movement happening online where people are starting to tell their stories anonymously, but I'm definitely going to check into it. Since you said like you've been in the college access space as a professional for a long time, what do you think has changed since you were in school? Like as you see some of these black at posts, what has changed over the past 17, 20 years since you were in high school? 
I mean, my high school experience is specific to that space of like a predominantly white private prep school, but sadly, I would say probably very little. Um, and that was what was most disheartening about reading those posts was, you know, I could have written many of them myself. And these were from alumni. I graduated high school in 97 and there was alumni from, you know, 2006, people who just graduated and they're all posting pretty much the same thing. And um, I think there are more black teachers in the school now, not, not many more, but a few more. But in terms of the sort of like microaggressions from other students and things like that, a lot of it is sadly still the same. I think for for me in the college access space. So basically, I I primarily work, you know, cultivating partnerships with with okay. institutions, um, higher ed institutions, helping students with the college application process, helping them secure scholarship money and funding, and try to um, secure space into those programs. Do other things within the school, like testing and things like that. So I kind of see myself as like the you know, helping them chart their course as they leave high school and then decide what they're going to do next or where they're going to be next. You know, un- unfortunately, many of the most rigorous and selective colleges are often these, again, predominantly white spaces. And I've almost always worked with students of color, like in charter schools and um, other nonprofits that have worked with students of color. And so, you know, again, recently with everything going on in the country, I've been reflecting a lot on my role because I basically am like taking students and like helping them hold up to this dream. But the dream is often going to put them in a place where they might feel alienated at times, where they might question their identity and hopefully they'll get a good education. But yeah, so I I guess I've just been thinking a lot about being in college access and the fact that college still remains a, you know, space in which white supremacy is fully intact then in working with black and brown students, how do I make sure that they're safe and equipped to deal with that next step into those spaces? I'm excited to talk more about college access. So I'm going to dig deeper with you in that space. But before we get there, what led you to begin your career in education? Like, do you think you were inspired and influenced by your mom? Yeah, so it kind of, I think I was lucky in the sense that I, always wanted to do this so I didn't have to go through that whole like oh let me take career interest inventories and let me think about what I want to do like ever since I was I think I was like 12 I started a daycare in my backyard in the summer for the neighborhood kids and then in high school I worked at Summerbridge which is now Breakthrough Collaborative as a teaching assistant and then a teacher I was there for a number of years and then in college I was part of the AmeriCorps Um, literacy teaching program. So it was just always something that appealed to me. My whole house was all about education. So in addition to my mom homeschooling us, my father was a professor of philosophy for 40 years. So yeah, everybody was all about the learning (laughs) in my house. (laughs) And my sister briefly taught, but she's now a lawyer. So I'm I'm the one child who's stayed in the field. (laughs) I did teach for America after college. um, And then from there, I kind of, you know, I don't, I don't know if you want me to go into it, but basically I, I found my way into college access after like pursuing social work and some of the one-on-one counseling that I found to be really, like as I was teaching, as I was doing Teach for America, like I enjoyed teaching, but what I found most valuable was being able to make connections with the students and help them with some things that were like outside of the classroom. And so I thought I would go into social work and kind of work from that angle. But um, at social work school, 
I really saw the value in the school as an institution that can move communities along. And so I wanted to be back in the school. So college access was kind of a blend of like that, you know, teaching plus counseling aspect. Do you miss the classroom at all? No, I don't. <laughs> I, I love watching other teachers do their thing. Um, and I do do some teaching. Like we have college access curriculum that mm-hmm. I have to teach and develop. But no, I don't, I don't like being on stage. <laughs> it is such, it I, is such yeah. a performance. Like teachers are performers. They are so many things. But yeah, it's different. Yeah, absolutely. So speaking from classroom as a teacher to now looking at classrooms as part of the system of education, what is the state of education in Black America and how did we get here? Um, I think the state of education is probably as it was intended, which is that I don't think education system was ever created with the like idea of liberating and advancing certain parts of the population, you know, or even all of the population. It was initially like you want to create people who who obey certain rules, learn certain skills so that they can like work in these like factory level jobs or whatever. And I think we've tried to like change the mission without changing the structure. So now we're saying, oh, you know, we're, you go to school for college access and career development and critical thinking skills and leadership and all these other things. But at the same time, the classroom still looks the same. You still have someone standing in front and kids sitting in rows behind desks. It's still, you know, from eight to three and like, it's still the same structure. So the fact that like, regardless of new funding sources and educational initiatives and all these other things that by and large, the results are still the same. You still have poor black and brown kids you know, receiving an inferior education for the most part, you still have a lot of school segregation, all these problems still continue to exist. Um, so I just have been thinking a lot about like, what will it really take in the same way people are saying policing is broken, defund the system, you have to remake it from scratch. I kind of feel the same way about education that it's, it's continues to not do what it's supposed to do. You know, how do we kind of break it apart and remake it? And I think coming from a homeschooling background, it's easier for me to kind of envision that because I've seen how school that looks entirely nothing like school that most people think of worked very well for all of me and my siblings. This is just one of many stories and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon. Now, let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. I agree with you in terms of looking at the system as a whole and saying if it is not working, we need to make this system different. It's not working. You made a statement that college, that within college, white supremacy culture is fully intact. What does that mean? Um, It's a lot of things. Um, The biggest thing it means is that like all the institutions that are seen as like the most prestigious, the most validating that will get you the furthest in terms of grad school or jobs, or even for me, you know, I've, I've worked as a leader in a nonprofit and I've got a lot of resumes on my desk and I myself would screen people by looking at colleges, you know, and how there's biases towards different degrees from different places. And by and large, the places that people are 
considering to be the best are schools that were founded on, you know, money from slave owners that still have things named after Confederate leaders that continue to maintain the, the, the population breakdown of X amount of white people. And then you have some people of color sprinkled in there so that you have diversity and you can learn from diverse voices, but it's still always maintaining a certain percentage of white spaces. So the staff, like who gets tenure is often biased. Like there's, there's so many ways in which higher ed is a white space. I mean, I think speaking of those accounts on Twitter, you know, I'm sure that if they, for the ones I haven't seen college based ones, I'm sure that they exist, but it would be all the same stuff. Like when you go to one of these schools and I went to, to Williams college, which again was same thing. It's an excellent education, but it was very much a white space. And you experience like constant microaggressions, like your whole experience there, but you tolerate it and you endure it because you're told that this degree, this education is the thing that gets you ahead. And um, I think that we uphold corporate culture for our kids. Like you will have made it when you can work at JP Morgan or, you know, you can be a lawyer or you will, you will have proven yourself and you do that. And like to do that, you need to go to these certain institutions now, having come from one of those institutions, I will say that the, actual, that the education was very good there. Like, I had very good teachers. I got to do an amazing study abroad program. There was a lot of resources. So it's not to say that, like, that, you know, you're not going to get a good education if you go there, but at what cost, I guess. You mentioned that schools are institutions that move communities. Could be. Could be. Yeah, or should be. <laughs> should be. Is college still the only answer? No, I don't think it is. But I do think, again, this is another, I keep saying I'm grappling with stuff. I'm, like, I feel like I'm asking myself a lot of questions because, you know, I've, going, I've gone through the motions for like, you know, every year is a cycle of college admission. And so every year you run your data. And every year I'm like, man, I nailed it. I got like 100% four-year colleges or X amount of kids got scholarships to these Ivy League schools and whatever. So I'm very good at my job. But then I started to think, well, like, is that, like, (laughs) what does that actually mean? You know, what's happening here? Now, first, I will say that part of the reason I stay in this work is because now having done it for so long and being in touch with many of the students I've worked with, I've literally seen very concrete ways in which their lives have been, you know, been like improved. So like students who didn't have a lot of access to things, a lot of the students were on like public assistance, et cetera. These are kids who were very smart, very motivated. All they needed was an opportunity and like a foot in the door. And they, when they got it, they took it. And so many of these students, you know, like I have students who are now lawyers, students who are teachers, students who are in politics and who are doing really well, who are starting families, who bought houses, like, and when I see that, I'm like, okay, so there's something working here because, you know, we still live, as much as we might want to dismantle certain things, we still live in this society and there's still real consequences for stuff. And so while it would be nice to say that, like, you don't need a college degree and college is not the only way, until things are like fundamentally changed, it's actually the students of color and the low income students who do really need those college degrees. Because when we don't set them up with something, 
to unfortunately that validates them and that allows them access to certain spaces, then we're doing them a disservice. And so like I get into this discussion a lot at my job, you know, my current school is pretty progressive and there's a lot of teachers there who are like, oh, pushing college is anti-equity and, you know, it's, it's, it's white supremacist, et cetera. And I have to constantly like remind them that like, yes, there should be alternatives and we should create alternatives. But at this point, it is still one of the single greatest, mo- you know, like ways to mobilize someone from poverty into the middle class um, to help change the trajectory for their families and to give them some like concrete resources that can actually make their lives better. It may not be that like college is the only answer, but as we try to change that, let's still equip the kids with college degrees so that they can get inside the system and, and do that work. So as a millennial, I think we were taught that college was the great equalizer. And like you said earlier about corporate culture, that you were supposed to go to college and get this good job. And that's how you knew that you were doing what you're supposed to do. For some, I think for all students, access is important because for some people, access was not even an option. So that was a barrier. Now that that barrier is gone and students have the option, I think it's about making sure that students recognize that they have access to all the options and that college is not the only option. Before they made it seem like it was college or you were not like you went to college or you went to the army or you just kind of wasted your life. Unless you married (laughs) rich. Like it was limited. But now I think if we move away from saying college is the only option to saying that there are multiple options for college and career paths for students based on their interests and their strengths, I think that's a way that we can kind of shift but still create the space for college going culture and the other career options too. Yeah, and I think what I've tried to do, at least in terms of how I run my department, is that I position it as you must apply to college because you must have the option. Like, so like as you were saying, like I don't want you leaving, like uh, carrying arms without having at least that option to attend. Um, and if you decide to choose something else, that's totally fine. But you must at least do this process so that you have that option. What does concern me, though, is, again, just similar to, like, what I always, again, when I have these, like, kind of equity-like discussions with my colleagues, I say, we can, we can say, oh, you don't have to go to college, but, like, do you see wealthy white families telling their kids that? They don't, usually. You know what I mean? And so when we give kids a pass, who ends up getting the pass, right? So, like, if we're saying, hey, you don't have to do it, think about which kids probably will end up not doing it. It's going to be students with learning needs. It's often kids whose parents don't speak English or kids who are students of color. And so we have to be very, very careful about letting kids opt out because the wealthy white families aren't letting their their children opt out. They could have a kid who has like a 1.5 GPA (laughs) and, you know, struggles, but they they make sure that 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 child gets into a school. The wealthy white family will pay the money to to (laughs) fake scholarships so that their kids get to go to prestigious colleges. Yeah, they're, they're making sure of it. And so it's like, well, you know, I want to make sure you also have that opportunity as well. And, and the other thing is I want to make sure when they decide not to go to college that they have a something concrete lined up. So, like, right now with this class that just graduated for me, there's a few kids who did get into college but then are telling me that they're taking what, what 
because my school has, it's an intentionally diverse population. So there's some students who are very um, well healed, and then there's other students who are on like free and reduced lunch. So it's an interesting group to work with. Um, and so the terminology of like gap years has like come into play. So um, what is a gap so, year? Well, so historically, a gap year is something that like wealthy, privileged people did, where instead of going directly to college after high school, they would travel to build wells in Africa, or they might go and do internship on like architecture in, in, in Italy or like something. It would be something where it was like a learning experience, um, but it was often either like service-based or, you know, something that you had to like have some ends to get this special experience, like often travel, traveling to different countries, things like that. But now because students, the wealthy students use that terminology, I'm seeing like everyone adopts the terminology of gap year, which is a little bit dangerous because the gap year for my other students literally means that they don't have anything set up. And so the students will be like, oh, miss, I'm taking a gap year. And I'm like, well, what are you doing in this gap year? Like, I need to know that you're doing something. Like, let us help you find something, you know? So like one kid, we help set him up with America, you know, AmeriCorps. So that's totally great. Um, but the other kids who are not wealthy and are telling me they're taking a gap year, I'm just like, I don't think this is a great idea because you're calling it a gap year, but it's a it's not a gap year. to do nothing. Yeah. yeah. And so again, it's the ways in which it's like you're like languaging, you're like the language of privilege, but it's not really benefiting the people who aren't privileged. Yeah, it, it is. A, I can see how that can become a really slippery slope where people who already felt like college was not for them adopt the language of, well, college is not for me, so I'm going to opt out of this college application process because I'm going to pursue other career paths because college is not for me, but I'm going to take a gap year while I figure it out. No, that's not how this works. That's how, that's all of that is backwards. Yeah, absolutely. So, so one thing we're trying to put into place is having kids who think that they may not want to go to college, they're going to still like apply probably to the CUNY system, but we're going to help them put together like a comprehensive post-secondary plan that would have like some parent involvement. It would have some guidance counselor, like not college counselor, but like guidance counselor involvement. And then we have a career services person. And so the idea is that like, if you think you truly aren't going to go to college, we want to see like some actual plan spelled out that you're going to accomplish xyz things by the end of the year such as like making sure your resume is up to date like having some interview um skills that you have to practice or like some other stuff that we want to make sure we're equipping them before they leave the hr professional in me is very happy to hear that (laughs) students are doing that i think all senior i think all students should do that but just the idea that should you decide not to pursue college you need to have this portfolio with all of these documentations with your language figured out so that you can articulate your elevator pitch for yourself. Because now you, the day after you graduate, you're no longer a student. Like the next morning when you wake up, that's it. And if you don't have a plan and if you can't articulate your plan and if you don't know where to direct your energy, that's how people can just kind of float and you fall into situations and fall into circumstances. Sometimes it works out. Sometimes you end up in a situation where it's like, how did I get here? But either way, <laughs> like to have that plan and that language, the resume, a cover letter template, understanding your strengths, understanding like what programs you are good at, 
you know, any right, trainings right. that you've taken or workshops or leadership activity. I think that's a really cool idea. Yeah, and I think, like, as you were saying, you know, as a millennial, which um, I think I'm too old for that, but, like, <laughs> your generation does have, like, these skills that weren't necessarily cultivated within the traditional classroom. Like, in, in this graduating class, I have students who have, like, started fashion lines. I have other kids who are, like, amazing photographers, um, students who just write their own music and beats. Like, there's a lot of ways in which people can now, you know, with with the advance of, like, YouTube and the internet stuff, there's things that people can do. But again, like, you just doing that in your basement doesn't mean that much. Like, you need to know how to present it to somebody. You need to know how to, like, curate your stuff, put it somewhere on a platform, like, a whole bunch of other things. So I think that, like, yes, you know, the world is expanding in the sense of, like, non-traditional college opportunities but still the sort of like soft skills of presenting oneself having the elevator pitch like you said knowing your strengths those are all like never going to change like you need to know how to do those things and in a perfect perfect ideal situation we would really learn those things in schools through our educators (laughs) with our educators who can help us see the strengths that we don't see in ourselves and create the space to cultivate those strengths Um, How have you grown since you began your career? What's something that you kind of struggled with in the beginning that you worked through that now, you know, you realize that you've grown? As a very young teacher, like in the first years, you have a desire for like students to like you. And sometimes at the expense of like holding them accountable for like certain things like, you know, turning in stuff and, you know, meeting certain goals that you have for them. And so, there was like always this desire to like, you know, as, as young people often have to be liked by your students. And I think as you kind of grow in your confidence and grow in your voice, you're very sure that you're offering them a resource that they need. There's just a different way that I kind of approach students now where, you know, I'm very, you know, confident that I can be of assistance to them. I'm confident that I care for them and that my care will come through and and like the resources that I've prepared for them. And I think that's where I kind of like lead with as opposed to like, and of course you still want to have a good relationship. You still want to joke. You still want to have a sense of humor, um, do fun little things and stuff. But I think leading with the sort of like, I have your best interests at heart and that's where the connection comes from first. It's just sort of like a different approach. I think that I've developed as I've gotten older. Are there any Black educators that you would like to thank as you reflect on all of your experiences from homeschool students, shout out to mom and dad, the original (laughs) educators, and your sister, even though she decided to go take her talents to the courtroom from the classroom. (laughs) Are there any educators that kind of poured into you or supported you or helped you elevate to become your best self that you would like to thank? And your history teacher, because you mentioned her too. Yes, I mean, I was. She would have been the first person to come to mind, and I have thanked her before, and I'll thank her publicly. Miss Carol, you were life changing for me and many other students, and I'm sorry that you're not treated with the respect that you deserved, um, and that you weren't allowed to stay and impact more other students. I also would like to thank the other black teacher in that high school as well, Mr. Morrell. He also was like super supportive. And he helped cultivate my love of art. And he was like always like a gentle, calm presence and a safe space to go to when things got, you know, stressful in school. There's another group of, uh, kind of like a group of educators that I want to thank. That's, we call ourselves the Freedom Crew. 
this is when we were at um, Uncommon Schools, one of the like charter networks in Newark, and um, there was a group of uh, black educators that were in that school that you know saw some things that we didn't necessarily agree with, and we wanted to just keep the like mission of students foremost. And I think we did that because the students still like come to us as a resource, even like many, many years later. But we called ourselves the Freedom Crew and they all have continued to go off into different educational spaces and just really be about the students. Like everywhere they go, they're like down for the students, supporting the students, even when it doesn't like sit well with administration. And so I still find them inspiring. Zinzali, John, Shanae. You know, a lot of you guys just like, I think like, I, the fact that you keep doing your thing and keep spreading it to the, each different network that you go to is so, so important. Thank you so much for sharing your story, for shouting out the Freedom Crew, your parents, your <laughs> two black educators at your high school and everybody that is still just participating to the growth and the movement of communities through education. You've really given me some phrases that I'm going to hold close to my heart today. <laughs> so thank you so much, Enuma. Oh, no problem at all. I still, I still like my, my fantasy, like my educational fantasy is to like get together with all these amazing black educators that I've met over the course of my career. There's only like two or three or maybe four of us at these different institutions. And we're all like constantly just trying to fight the good fight, you know, amidst, amidst other things that are going on. And it gets tiring and you get exhausted and your impact is minimized by the fact that there's only a few of you. And so I'm like, when are we going to get together? When are the black educators going to get together and going to start our own thing? Um, <laughs> I'm, still hold, I'm still holding out for that. I want that to happen so badly. I'm with you. So look, we're two or more agree. So I'm agreeing with you right now. When are we going to get together? All the black educators. Well, you got your 500 that you're interviewing. Maybe you got to connect us all or something. That's just the beginning. That's our goal. We wanted to create like this ecosystem of black educators globally because we are all over and we can do amazing things for all of the students. You know, blacks, black educators have been proven to be beneficial to all students. All students. So, yeah, when are we going to get together? We working on it. We own it. (laughs) So I want to officially say to you, um, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your journey. And thank you for doing what you do. Everything that you've done, it was, it is, and it always will be worth it. So thank you. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a black teacher today.